Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're talking with Stephanie Shriok. She's the head of Emily's List. That's the fundraising powerhouse that raises millions and millions of dollars for Democratic pro-choice female candidates. And Stephanie is relentlessly positive. So she's got a problem with the Democrats sounding like Eeyore. Oh, we're going to lose. Trump's going to win. She's like, get a hold of yourselves. We talk about that. We talk about how women are being treated in the presidential primary race. Stephanie has some concerns about that. And she cautions Democrats not to make a safe pick and the problems in the past when they have. Next, Stephanie Shriok on It's All Political. Stephanie Shriok, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome back to the city of St. Francis. And this is your third appearance, a record-breaking third appearance on It's All Political, tied with Adam Schiff. Is there a personal contest you have between you? Well, I do now. I do now. I I wasn't aware of this, but now I'm in. You're in. Congressman Schiff, watch out. Game on. I'm a huge fan of yours, but game on. All right. So we we meet every every year or so on, on this uh, forum. And um, how is when you're looking at the landscape for 2020, how is it different than first of all, how is it different than 2018 when you're looking for Democrats in general and female candidates specifically? Yeah, um, well, I think those are sort of two different, very two different questions. I was what we saw at Emily's List in 2017 and 18. Uh, was a just a surge of energy by women across the country, Democratic women who wanted to run for office, mm-hmm. and and I, I think we talked about this a year ago where mm-hmm. we were you know we were having thousands and thousands of women uh, sign up on our website saying I want to run. They didn't necessarily know what they wanted to run for or how to go about doing this, but that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, that number today is over 47,000 women who have signed up. Uh, and so we saw that in 17 and 18, we were able to, to guide that energy into historic numbers of candidates. Uh, we were able at Emily's List to ensure that a historic number of women won their primaries and got on the general election right. ballot. And then, of course, uh, made history in the U.S. House, but in legislatures all across the country. I mean, we, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of, of women. Have those numbers continued? Did the well, pace continued or not? The, the pace has actually um, continued as it was in 18. Now, 17 was huge. I will say right. it was like by the thousands. Yes. But what's amazing like I sit here today, every single day, women come to our website and sign up wanting to run for office. I do not remember one day in the, since 2016, since that, you know, what we consider a terrible election of 2016, uh, where there's been a day that's been zero. Do we have a number? Like, what's, what's, can you quantify how many, how many people since the end of the, since the beginning of this year? Thousands. You have, you have a number. I, right, no, we'll, we'll I, number. I mean, yeah, we'll get, we'll have to do it. I mean, I actually, you know, you know, I get an email every morning that tells me how many signed up yesterday, there- just every morning. And some mornings it's four and some mornings it's 17. And if something really big happens, usually on the good side, like if something, which is interesting, we're sort of driven by really good victories. News. Good news. Yeah. It's like, oh, I see that, you know, a certain congresswoman did something. I'm really excited. I want to run too. Yeah, okay. And less so about 
around bad news, which is sort of an interesting thing that we were monitoring last year. But no, we're still seeing that same energy. And so as we go into uh, into our recruitment phase is what we're in right now at Emily's List, uh, particularly at the legislative level, but also U.S. House and Senate. Uh, we are, we're still looking at a lot of races with a, honestly, a lot of women running in some of them, which is our new challenge and opportunity so at Emily's List. that's our new list, challenge we got, there's too oh, many women running. Yeah, well, I would, we many. would not say that. <laughs> we would not say that, but that there's, you know, I, I think I, I've, I've said this before, you know, Ellen Malcolm, who founded Emily's List and was president for 25 years before I took over her, her mantle, uh, years ago now, I called her up because we, I think we had, I think it was 2012, and I think we had maybe five primaries. Five that had more than one woman. And it was like, oh, this is like complicated. What do you do? And I called her up and I said, like, what did you do with all this for 25 years? And she said to me, for 25 years, I can count on one hand how many races we had more than one woman. Think wow. about that for 25 wow. years. Uh, that, that's all we have right now. I mean, it's like- Really? It's like, I mean, there's yeah, how many- like all you, the time. Like, how many The Texas could you Senate have, race, like, the Georgia Senate race, wow. the Colorado Senate race, all multiple women. Uh, Kansas looks like it might be a multi-woman uh, primary for the Senate. These are U.S. Senate seats in house races across the country. I mean, it's, you know, lots and lots of house races. You get in the legislative races, same thing. Uh, and so for us, uh, you know, this is, you know, it's just an opportunity to think through how do we, you know, how do we make them all better candidates? And then ultimately we have to figure out how to get one of them, somebody, a woman through a primary. And that's, you know, sort of our new challenge. But my goodness, what a great problem to have because yeah. you've got so much energy still uh, and it hasn't slowed down. It just hasn't slowed down. What did you learn from the 2016 presidential race? that you, you are urging, because I know you have a lot of back-channel conversations with candidates and campaigns and such. What are you urging them to do differently than in 2016? Yeah, and that, that gets to what, you know, what's, what's different about this current election than 18. Because 18 was a, like, oh my goodness, this just happened. We got to do something. It started as a resistance election yes. and then turned into a, like, we just got to take them down. And they did in the House. Yeah. Uh, Senate map was harder for us in, in 18, so we weren't quite able to take the majority back in the Senate. And so we get into, into 2020, and what the shift I've seen sort of in the psyche of the party is that, okay, 18 went really well for us as Democrats, but oh no, we're gonna like screw this up and we're, Trump's gonna win and it's a disaster. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, it's like, it's like we're all Eeyore. Like the entire Democratic Party is like Eeyore. And, and my response to this is like, stop wringing your hands about this. Like, you know, because part of what Trump's magic is, I think, is his ability to drive fear and anxiety into the culture. And if we allow that to take us over, he wins. That's how he's going to win. Like, he knows what he's doing on that front. I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing on governing, but he knows what he's doing on <laughs> manipulation of people's psyche, and he's really good at that. And so what, I've, what I think about in this presidential election, and my first, to answer that, you know, sort of a long way to answer that different than 16, is this, ain't, this isn't 2016. Like, so let 16 go. I don't even want you to look at 16. Really? You know why? Because it's just a totally different environment. One, it was an open seat. It was an open seat. Mm -hmm. 
I was an open seat after eight years of a democratic administration. The country wanted change. That's what happens after eight years of any administration. I don't care which party. That's what happens typically. And so we were already in sort of the negative side of an open seat election in the presidential. Uh, And so you just, you got to walk away from what 16 was. You've got different players and you've got a guy who is currently the president uh, who has a record, who has a lot of things that he has said every, every day. He says something else on Twitter. I mean, this is just a completely different election. And so one, don't run 16. We will lose. You got to run 2020. In which way don't run 16? So everybody's completely and totally, you know, fixated on like, how do we get that? I was going to say, how do we get that white working class guy who just came out of the mine with the hard hat? Right. And I want to, I want to get that guy back too. I do. But you know, we got to do that. We got to do that in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and we win. And that's true, but that's not the only way to do this. Because you know what else we could do? We could get the woman at the diner who's given him his coffee because it's more likely we'll get her. Mm. Uh, we just saw in 18 an electorate that in most battlegrounds, house districts and states, so places like Michigan, the electorate was 54% women in our polling. 54% wow. women. Now, I know Has that jumped at all or not? Huge jump in a midterm. Okay. Huge jump in a midterm. Uh, midterms, my, my sisters across the country do not vote at the same level as they do in the presidential. Women, step up. We need you. <laughs> they are not alone. <laughs> we can do this. We can do this. Um, but, uh, but that midterm number is huge change. Now, in presidentials, we will see electorates that are 53, maybe 54% women. But to see it in a midterm says to me that women are still motivated, and we're seeing that in the signups, energized, and they want to fix this. So we could be looking at an electorate, I believe, that is a could be 55% women. What if the electorate's 56% be, women what, in what's Pennsylvania? A, what's it typically the, in, 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 a in a presidential? presidential 53, maybe wow. 54%. So you could say a 57 I don't could, know. You, you I mean, it's not out not. of the realm of possibility. Uh, so one, you might just have a very, not even might, you will have a different electorate. I think as long as we don't allow the fear to take over us, we're going to have a historically high electorate. Now on both sides, it's going to drive, he's going to drive up his electorate. I think ours is coming out. And then you've got, you've got suburban and exurban women who we didn't quite do what we wanted to. We won them barely it, with Hillary Clinton. We really did great with them in 2018. That's how we picked up a bunch of these house seats. Uh, we got to do that again and then mobilize our base. Women voters are going to decide what, this What election. brings out those suburban women? What would bring them out in 2020? Um, one thing I want to ask you is that yeah. there's, we're very, it's very possible that we may have a, uh, an abortion case before the Supreme Court yeah. next year. And uh, given, given the way the court is uh, configured these days, uh, it's likely to go against uh, you mm-hmm. guys. Uh, and when I say you guys, Emily's List supports Democratic pro-choice women. That's right. Um, uh, in raw politics, uh, I know you would hate that verdict um, or the decision, but politically, wouldn't that help get more women out, especially more? If there are restrictions on abortion rights, wouldn't that not help get suburban women 
out, give, you know, give them a, a push to the polls? I think those women already have enough fodder on that issue already. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I go into these, these communities around, whether it's Montgomery County outside of Philadelphia mm-hmm. or you know, Dakota County up in Minnesota, you know, these suburban and exurban counties and talk to the women, like they, they're already seeing it and reading it. I mean, the, the Alabama abortion ban, the last clinic almost closing in Missouri, uh, the, Obo- the Ohio uh, near abortion ban, they got it. They know what's they know going access on. It's shrinking. like rapidly yeah. and they are and angry. They're seeing so the, the, the court case, uh, I mean, it will be so devastating. I mean, that's, I mean, people are really afraid. I mean, mm. women are really afraid. And so are men. I mean, it's not just women. I mean, right. there's a lot of men who care about this issue, too. Yes. Uh, and so I I think that, you know, our hope is that we can build enough momentum to prevent the wrong decision. I, I don't know if that's going to be possible. But I, they're already riled up. I mean, does it rile them up more? I don't know. Yeah. They're riled up. They're riled up on this. They're riled up on, I mean, my goodness, the what this country has been through again with El Paso uh, and with Dayton. I just, gun safety is What's different about these these and how could that, you know, again, in political terms, I don't want to dismiss, you know, what what went on there, but in political terms, how does that get more people out to the polls? How does that, what's different about this? It's just, it's, I think it's partially just the continuing building up of it. And it's just hard to, I think for even us, you and I as individuals sitting here to think about how many, you know, mass murders that we have seen and read about and just, it's, it's building and building up. And I think particularly, um, what happened in El Paso where you have so much, you know, I mean, it was a white power mm-hmm. attack, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can call it, you know, white nationalism. You can call you can call it a lot a lot of things. But this is this was a guy who was going after Latinos, mm-hmm. right? Very explicitly. Clearly. Yes, yes, completely. Yes. That was, and that mm-hmm. was 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 driven, fueled even more by a president who is using language to drive that. And, and I think those, that piece, that hatred, that, uh, that um, racism, xenophobia, and misogyny that is coming out of the White House, like, that is why all of this is getting so much more intense, uh, particularly with women voters who have to then explain to their kids what's happening out of the president's mouth. Like what, how you would never let your kids say what he writes in his Twitter feed. Also have to have explain what happened in El Paso. That's right. And like in that, and why, and why, uh, you know, why you have to explain to your children today that it's a good thing for the school to do active shooter drills. Like, this is where we are. So people are just, they're, they're fed up. Mm-hmm. They're fed up. And he is speeding up sort of that emotion. And that's why I think we're just going to see 
really big turn. I think we're going to see a very big turn unless people give up, that's, which is that's what he's concern. counting on. Yeah. I think he's counting okay. on people giving up. Let's talk about the issues. The Democratic uh, candidates are definitely moving to the left on health care. Uh, many of them, especially among the leaders, have embraced Medicare for all. How does that play? You are a, a native Montanan. You do, uh, you, uh, you go on to, into these suburban areas. You don't just hang out in a you know, liberal bubble like San Francisco all the time, <laughs> like, like we do. Uh, so be, how does this play in the rest of the country? Is this, is this a mistake for the Democrats to em fully embrace Medicare for all? Or is this something that you think could resonate with women? I, the one thing I know about you know, in all of our polling and our campaigns and our work is that healthcare remains the number one or maybe the number two issue after sure. the economy, but it's tied to the economy so much for every family that it, to me, healthcare and the economy are the same thing right. for these families now. Uh, they are looking for solutions. And I honestly believe that it is less about what the solution is and that we do something to fix this healthcare situation. Do you get situation. the sense that voters I, like, I really understand think, the different plans? Or is, it, or is this mean, just some, coming off like wah, 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 wah? I think yeah. it gets really, I mean, when, the, when they get really wonky, I'm yeah. not sure I understand all of the <laughs> details of all the plans, right? But I know this, and this is what I, I, this is what I would recommend to every Democratic candidate running for president right now, right. is to start with this. The Democrats want to ensure that every American has health care somehow. We may not agree exactly how to get there, but we want to make sure that you and your family have health care because it is a right and you deserve that and you need that to be happy and successful and all of those things. And the Republican Party does not share that value. The Republican Party is spending every day trying to figure out how to dismantle Obamacare and dismantle the healthcare system and make it expensive and make sure that the money goes to the top and the pharmaceutical companies. That's what they want. That's not who we are. Yeah. And we may differ on how we get there and we'll have that debate, but that's the difference. And I just think everybody's got to start there right. and go, then we'll figure it but out. You don't think that's MF, uh, Medicare for all is a, is a disqualifier or it's going to push too far left at this point. I, I actually, I, I don't think that's the case because I think at the end of the day, voters are looking for someone who's going to fight for health care. Okay. And when it gets down to the very specific policies at the end, there's such a clear contrast between Donald Trump and the Republican Party and whoever our nominee, whoever she may be. <laughs> Very good. Very good. We've been waiting for the I plug knew there. You were going to do it. 16 minutes in, we, we was waiting, waiting for the plug. Be, yes, yes. Uh, that we're going to, you know, we're going <laughs> to we're going to fight over whether or not we should have healthcare in this country and how, you know, that's it. So I think, you know, I think this is just a moment where the divide is so different between these two parties. I mean, what we're hearing are the debates with among the Democrats. Right. You know, okay, fine. We're arguing. We love to argue over policy as Democrats. Yes. It's our favorite thing to do. Uh, as the TV ratings just sink, you know, for, for each successive debate. At the end yes. of the day, I was like, we just want to make sure people have health care. Figure it out. Just Spe figure it out. Speaking of the candidates and who she will be, who, whatever. Um, uh, do you feel that the, the female candidates have been treated fairly this time, both uh, by the media and by the party? Uh, I think the I think the party has done, and, and I know there's a lot of grousing about it, but I think the party's done 
about as well as they could with the situation they have in front of them. In other words, like, 10 million people I mean, wanting on. to run for president. Yeah, what are you going to do? Right. I mean, what do you know, Chairman Perez has got 24, 20. I don't even know the number anymore. Is it 24, we 23? Just, we just we lost, just lost one, we just one lost, yesterday. Just lost I can't Hick. keep track. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, what did they want? What do people want the DNC to do? Yeah. You know, I want the DNC to organize and raise money and make sure that we've got people on the ground talking about Democratic Party values uh, and to be ready to go for the nominee. And I want you to run fair debates. And I, I don't know exactly the magic You're formula. Okay so I, that's what I say. I mean, would I maybe do something? Sure, I guess. You know, Reince Priebus, when he was running the Republican National Committee in, in 2016, uh, had to figure this out. And I would say he did not figure it out well. Like having a kitty table was a bad idea. So yes. we didn't do that. <laughs> so what, what's the magic formula? Yeah. Uh, so from that aspect, I think, um, you know, I've been you know, relatively pleased about, I don't see any gender challenges. Now okay. there's might be others. And I, as I said, I'm sure I know there's people grousing about stuff, but I will say uh, when Elizabeth Warren launches her campaign in, in January, February, whenever it was, and she has to spend a week dealing with whether or not she's likable. Like, we're still there. We're still there. Uh, because the last time I checked, like, Bernie Sanders doesn't rank high on the likability scale. But good on other things, maybe, but uh, there's not a big story about, there's not, I should say, there's not 20 stories about him. Um, and it's just like, we're dealing with likability. And then we, um, you know, the coverage of, I think it's gotten a little bit better in the last few months, but maybe because Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are rising up in the polls. But, you know, I, I still see a lot of coverage of, of men who sort of have come out of nowhere. I mean, Beto O'Rourke had a pretty good run when he first got in, yes. whereas Elizabeth Warren wasn't likable for a week, or uh, you know, our, our mayor Pete, and I'm not, and it's not, and it's not yeah. their fault. Right. It's just sort of the coverage. Mayor of Pete it. had a lot of glowing coverage early Abs too. Absolutely, and not that he shouldn't, right. but you know, Kamala Harris had to actually prove herself at the first debate to get glowing coverage for a week, and she deserved it, but she fought like hell for it. Uh, and I'm like super proud of her. I hope California is too. Like they, she was, she's doing really well. Uh, so I, that's hard. And I'm not sure. I mean, I just, you know, I say this in our government with our gubernatorial candidates too, all the time when, you know, when Gretchen Whitmer was running for governor in Michigan, Michigan uh, last election cycle, I mean, we, we spent a year, it was like whack-a-mole trying to you know, prevent other people from saying there's never, Michigan's not going to vote for a woman for governor, which I was like, actually they had already because they voted for Jennifer Granholm twice. Yes. <laughs> Oakland's own. Uh, yeah, right now, now proud, proud Oaklander. Uh, I mean, we dealt with all kinds of stuff with Gretchen Whitmer. And at the end of the day, she's like, what am I going to do? I'm like, you're just going to win. You just have to win. And maybe if you win, it's a little bit better for the next one. You know, I, we just have to win. Uh, and I don't know what magic formula there is to Is that, to cover is that, that. also tie in with, quote unquote, electability? And we just oh. had we just had uh, uh, Brenda, uh, Brenda Carter, from the, uh, who's done one of the foremost researchers in electability, yeah. saying white men have no electability advantage when you actually, you know, depending on who runs. If women run, they win. Um, 
is that that ties in with that as well, I imagine. I did, yes, yes. And we we felt for a period of time, particularly over the spring, that there was a uh, there was definitely a growing sense that like no woman could be Trump was sort of the the mindset, and they were all getting categorized. Which has always been my concern is that we were going to categorize the women running for president as all one thing, women. But I mean, look at that. They're, they are. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is not Kamala Harris, and Kamala is not Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kirsten is not. I mean, these are very specific, unique individuals, right? And nobody and is Marianne like, Williamson. And, right there, and then yes. you got Tulsi Gabbard. Don't want to leave Gabbard, anybody yes, out yes, of this. Yes. Come on, you, you know, don't want to be Vogue magazine. I don't want to yes. do that. We're going to like here you go, and I you know, say this to go, operatives, press, sort of the, the grass tops aren't so good at defining who's electable, in my opinion, right. because all of us didn't think Donald Trump was electable. Is that fair to, <laughs> but, but even to comment on it, because Marianne was, was on the podcast the other day and she said, people before I even started called me a long shot candidate. But I mean, at some point, I mean, she's a political neophyte. Oh, she sure. doesn't have a a, a, a a constituency in that. Well, she she actually does. Yeah, so I was going to say, she, say she's has got a, a natural base. constituency. But I mean, she doesn't have a you know geographic et cetera mm -hmm. constituency or you know a, a donor list other than people who buy her books and mm -hmm. see her stuff. So, is it fair to shouldn't there be some ability to have some commentary on that, like who's a long shot or who's far behind or whatever? Well, be, what's, the, what's the line a, between that? But being that? a long shot. In uh, that long shot, you know, not being electable in a general election, I think are two different things. Mm -hmm. I, I think we just have to be really careful about what electability is. Do you think that the the women have been still been targeted as being less electable against Trump, or do you think that's fading a little bit? I sure hope it's fading, but I just read a story yesterday talking about how you know Elizabeth Warren is rising in the polls and doing well but it's really a it's really a heart thing and an over you know and the head says we need to go with Biden because he's more electable and Elizabeth like they like her and they want her to be president but they don't think she can win a whole story about again again and and I just I was like oh you've got to be kidding me like why don't we just like let the process play itself out. Let's see. I mean, here's, here's my theory on this. Becoming the Democratic nominee is really hard to do. It honestly is. Because you have to get through an Iowa caucus, which is actually a pretty liberal group of people. Mm -hmm. You then, then got to go to New Hampshire, which is going to be wide open. You got to go to South Carolina. And that's when the African-American community has a huge, huge say. And that is a very moderate to sometimes conservative-minded community. Yes. Uh, and you go to North Nevada, and then you start pulling together the Hispanic piece of it. Like, you have to build, and then you gotta go big, because then Super Tuesday's right behind you. Yeah. Uh, and you have to have organization in mind. Okay, this is hard to do. I believe the person who can put that all together, that coalition that gets you through that process, that's the person who can beat Trump, in my mind. That's the person, because that's hard to do. And we're in the middle of that sausage making right now. And those candidates that are growing and getting better, like Elizabeth and Kamala, like I, I think they both are growing and getting better every day, mm. like have a better shot than, than others. Like you gotta grow in this process. So let's play this thing out. And, and I'll end on this, sorry, I'm sort of uh, filibustering on this, but the other thing I think about a lot is that 
when the when party when a party's out of power, as the Democrats clearly are, we are very anxious about what is going on. Now, particularly right now, because what is going on is truly terrible. (laughs) We are separating children from their families. This is a very bad time for us. But we make decisions about who's electable to beat the incumbent, because this is where we are, right? We got to take down an incumbent president. And it doesn't matter which party you are. You sort of start thinking about, or putting a very high priority on who can win. Who can win? And then you get nominees like and good people, but Walter Mondale, safe choice. Right. Bob Dole, safe choice. John Kerry, safe choice. I worked for Howard Dean. He was not the safe choice. John Kerry was the safer choice. You know, Mitt Romney, frankly. Uh, when you're in that, those, it's hard. The one time in those three decades that a party has defeated a sitting incumbent was with Bill Clinton in 92. Who's not the safe choice. No. The safe choice actually didn't run that year, I would argue, which was Governor um, Mario Cuomo. So we we have to be careful about that. As, a, as Democrats, I say, let's just be open to where this process leads us. And sometimes going with your heart, actually, I'm not saying you should ignore your head completely, but maybe let your heart in a little bit. And see where this guy's. There's some you. good advice. A couple more things I want to touch on before we before I let you go. Um, Amy McGrath in Kentucky, she's taking on Mitch McConnell. Uh, you guys are not. Uh, you, I guess, you haven't endorsed him that right. You haven't backed her. She hasn't asked you for the endorsement or anything. Yeah, Amy, Amy McGrath hasn't currently sought our endorsement yeah. yet. Um, we've had some early conversations yeah. with her, but I, absolutely the best candidate against Mitch McConnell. I am thrilled she's running. What about the, um, the when she t- came It's out. a tough state. Let's know, be honest. State. 30, let's. I mean, 20, it is twenty-three percent, and it's uh, also Mitch McConnell. Yeah, I mean, let's yeah, just, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very tough race. <laughs> Were you concerned about when she when she said, you know, I uh, I probably would have voted for Kavanaugh, and then she walked it back, you know, within twenty-four hours, which that's a little weird. Did that, does that a disqualifier or, or how should I do not I do not think it I do not think it is a disqualifier I I do think it is a a good reminder to all candidates who are getting in that deep preparation and hard <laughs> questions and practice and all of that really does matter. So, so you're throwing you her, know, her breast team like, under the bus. <laughs> I, um, you know, this is, here's the thing. We are, we are looking to, and I think this is all in all really good. And it yes. worked really well in 2018, frankly, yes. is we're looking for non-traditional candidates. And non-traditional, and you interviewed one yesterday with Marianne Williamson. We're looking for (laughs) non-traditional candidates because they bring an authenticity and a realness to this, right? And I think it's really good for our government. Uh, But they're not pros yet. Like, this is new. And even though she 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 ran ran for the House, but but that's that's it. Like, this is, you know, these are high-state games, and they're going to misstep on occasion. And I think that's okay. Okay. Like, I don't think one misstep or two missteps disqualifies you anybody, you know, period. It's how you respond and then grow from that experience. And I think you're going to see a stronger Amy McGrath. And uh, you, you speak of Marianne, who was on the podcast yesterday. Um, she said, you know, we need to run a moral argument against Donald Trump. And I was like, Marianne, but I mean, we hasn't that argument. Are people settled on Trump's morality? I mean, the, the man, you know, paid hush money for a porn star. He's, you know, met 12,000 lies or mis, mischaracterizations, whatever, whatever you want to call it. You, he's 
you know, two dozen women have come forward with credible uh, accusations of uh, sexual impropriety against him. I mean, you know, aren't people kind of settled in their in their space against Trump? How much should the candidate, whoever she or he or they, we should say they, you know, to, be, to, to cover the entire spectrum, you know, right. we should That's say true. they, That's true. Um, uh, be, shouldn't they, how much of that moral argument should they make against Trump and how much should they run against Trump, period? Uh, I kind of agree with you in that a lot of this is baked in already. Like folks are fairly set on that question about Donald Trump, which is why I think, you know, his favorables um, are not in great shape. It's like yeah. the country's sort of decided on it. They don't really like him, you know. I mean, but there's 40 plus or minus three, depending on what kind of week he's having, uh, that are willing to either overlook that, which I think there's some of that going on. I know there's a lot of that going on. Uh, or just with them, with them, with them, right? That's that, that's the way it is. So I think, you know, what we did in 18, and I think that's going to be some of this moving forward, is you don't really have to talk about Trump all that much because it's out there all the time. It is, it is like the stew we're walking through right now, right? And there's, I don't know how, I wish I had a magic formula to stop that. <laughs> that image is making me a little know, dizzy. I am sorry, the Trump stew. But it's like, I, like, I don't know how we, I don't know how we stop that. I don't, I don't. I mean, he's, he, that's just, his, his Twitter feed is just too good not to cover in the worst of way. So I don't know what to say yeah. about that. So I don't think, you know, I don't think our folks need to live in that. I think what voters are looking for, and I think there's a big openness to this, because I think 60% of the country practically is not with him, uh, is we've got to provide what this could look like. Mm. A like positive got, message, yes, a different message. Yeah. Yes. And it's got to be, you know, it's got to be a strong economic message, but it does have to include, you know, a, a moral message. Mm. Like there's got to be something in there that is about who we want to be. Mm. And maybe we're going to have that fight. That might be the fight that, you know, she may be right and that that fight's kind of happening anyway. But, you know, my family in the Midwest, they're scared to death about the economy and their health care. I mean, this is still at the end of the day about people's daily lives. And that's that's where we are. Uh, one more quickie, because I, I promised my my colleague, uh, Tal Copen from uh, our Washington correspondent to ask this. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, Leader McCarthy from the Republicans, he says he was asked why more there aren't more Republican women running, and he says, "Well, Democrats keep running women against them." Um, what is your reaction? What, what is your, I, that, I hope, how did I miss I that? Hope, hope he I'm getting said that, that right. Yeah, I, there, oh, is that is that accurate? I mean, what, is that is that the reason that there's not as many Republican women and there's like 19 in the House or something like that? No, there's 13 in the 13 House. 13 in the House, and Sorry. like. Four of them are already planning on retiring or leaving yeah. or running for higher office. Yeah. I mean, it's it's outrageous. Uh, it, ah, this is such a frustrating thing for us because you know at Emily's list, only, you know, we focus on the yeah. on the Democratic side, and there was a reason for that when we started in 1985, which is we, we had to convince a party, the Democratic Party, that women were worth investing right. in. They weren't super progressive. No, on they that weren't at that like, point, come yeah. on in. And women, this is gonna be great. They were like, really? You're gonna like, bro, again, we're gonna. No, it was bad. And again, I credit Ellen Malcolm, our founder, who fought that fight for two decades and won it. 
Like we want it in the Democratic Party. Uh, and now we, we work really closely uh, on recruitment and, and continuing. And we've also spent, Emily's list has spent three and a half decades training, coaching, and bringing women into politics and, and then guiding and being with them. And we're with them forever. Like they can't really shake us. Like, like the mob or like, well, like I, a game. I, I don't like to think of it quite that way, but we were like, Jean Ortiz Jones like, yes. lost her congressional race in 2018 in Texas 23. And you know, the first call she gets after that's <laughs> over is from me. And I'm like, okay, what are we doing now? We're going to start planning your 2020 race. And she's like, I think maybe I should take a vacation. And <laughs> I was like, fine, you take a vacation. You we're going to plan God. this, you know, and she just scared, scared out Will Hurt. Yes. So we're in it for the long haul. That's and, the Republican who was who was and, the incumbent there. Oh yes, thank you. And uh, and so they desperately need a Republican Emily's list. They need an organization that is committed to that sort of candidate development, because there are obstacles that women face that are different than men, and we still face them, and we're facing them in this presidential race. They're still there, but you've got to have an organization that is committed to that. And they do not, no, and they don't, and they not. don't value it. They don't, they don't, they don't value the difference of perspectives. This is also, it's not just women, but it is people of color that are also not sitting in that Republican Party right now. Because you have to, you have to want to see that change at the table, and they're not showing any of that interest. And there's no true big organization pushing, and that's a problem. It's a huge problem. Uh, we cannot should not in this country be a two-party nation where one of the parties is basically white men. That's yeah. not, that is that is not who this this should be. That's not what America looks like. No, no. And, you know, for for decades in the 1970s and 80s, I mean, the women who were driving the Equal Rights Amendment, the women that were driving a lot of the, the choice activism were Republican women from New England. You know, we forget about that, but they were basically forced out of the party and the party, the Republican Party has shifted away from, from all of those issues, which has also made it not so exciting for women to be part of the Republican Party. And so now you've got this cycle that's just getting worse and worse because fewer women want to affiliate with the party. Therefore, you have fewer pool, you have a smaller pool of women yeah. to even pull into the process. It's, it's not good. It's not good, and they need to change their way, but it is not our fault. In fact, in fact, what they should do is take the lesson from us and, and someone, and I say this to my Republican counterparts that I run into, I'm like, okay, women, you need to start Emily's List over there. You got to do something. Right. And they pop up every once in a while, but then they don't make it because there's not, also the resources aren't there, and they got to right. fight for that too. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on It's Absolutely. All Political again. And uh, you got to go raise some money now, I guess. So we'll I, we're going to do it. We're right. yeah, yes, and you know I'm ready for number four because I got to stay yes. ahead now. Yeah, stay ahead of shift. Okay. I got it's Congressman shift. I got to okay. stay ahead of. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Stephanie Shriok for being on the podcast today in San Francisco. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you sound like Eeyore or Tigger or Pooh. It's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, 
subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.